the scripture reading this morning is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will to pray to be to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished upon us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. Glory to Thanks, Chuck. It's been a full service so far, so I may be doing a little speed preaching. Uh, two times, or 1.5 times, as you put on the... Anyway. Uh, Jonathan Haidt is um, a social psychologist in the Stern School of Business at New York University, and he's been doing a lot of research in the past decade on why the political right and left are unable to talk with one another and understand each other. He wrote um, an article in The Atlantic just about two weeks ago titled, Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. It's a catchy title, and of course, he's not saying that people or individuals have become more stupid. In fact, just the opposite. We're more educated and more access to information, but we've become structurally stupid. Uh, he argues that in the early 2010s, um, social media uh, has shifted from being a, a platform to share things about ourselves and our lives and the fun things about our families to becoming a platform um, to attack people who uh, think differently than you and such that we now find ourselves in these echo chambers unable to talk with one another um, when we disagree. 
And so now we think to ourselves, if I speak up on something, terrible things are going to happen to me. And that little bit of intimidation causes people to become silent. And when critics go silent, Haidt argues, that's when the group gets stupid. It's one thing to be polarized. Um, that's nothing new. What's new is the dynamic that he argues is caused by social media, especially Twitter, that causes the moderates on both the left and the right to go silent and the extremes to dominate the stage and the public square. This causes political parties to go off the rails and, to, and institutions to um, find themselves in decline as far as their reliability to be sources of truth and guidance for society. As a result, he argues, we find ourselves as a society in a perpetual state of rage. I commend this article to you. It's, um, it's very profound. It actually begins with the story of Babel, so it's really interesting. New York Times columnist David Brooks recognizes how this rift in society has found its way into the church. In his recent article, The Dissenters Trying to Save Evangelicalism from Itself, he writes this, think of your 12 closest friends. These are the people you vacation with, talk about your problems with, do life with in the most intimate and meaningful ways. Now imagine if six of those people suddenly took a political or public position you found utterly vile. Now imagine learning that those six people think that your position is utterly vile. You would suddenly realize that the people you thought you knew best and cared about the most had actually been total strangers all along. You would feel disoriented, disturbed, unmoored. Your life would change. This is what has happened over the past six years to millions of American Christians, um, David Brooks argues. Tim Dalrymple, the president of Christianity Today, he articulates his experience saying this, as a Christian, I've found the last five years to be shocking, disorienting, and deeply disheartening. One of the most surprising elements is that I've realized that the people who I used to stand shoulder to shoulder with on almost every issue, I now realize that we are separated by a yawning chasm of mutual incomprehension. A yawning chasm of mutual incomprehension. I would never have thought that could have happened so quickly. When I was a student at, at Fuller Seminary, I was introduced to this man, um, a, a wonderful, amazing, humble, um, uh, and faithful pastor and civil rights leader by the name of John Perkins. He stood up before a group of people recently, and he said this. He said, why is it that in this generation, we are attempting to turn hate into an asset? And for me, it's these words from Mother Teresa that ring so true in such a time as this. If we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to one another, that we belong to one another. And so I want to remind us, not just today, but in the next two months as we journey through this letter to the Ephesians, that how much we really do belong to one another. And not just in a sentimental uh, Rodney King, can we all just get along sort of way, but the deep hard reality that we really and truly do belong to one another. And we can only really know that at a deep level 
by recognizing that we are one as God is one in his life. And so for the next two months, we're gonna walk through this letter, this ancient letter, the book of Ephesians. I suppose you can't read these um, fine print letters. But the point of Ephesians is to discover the harmony and the unity that can be found in moments of hostility. And that's both relationally and hostility in, in our inward lives, in our families. Ephesians tells us the big story that because of what God has done on Easter in raising Jesus from the dead, God has unleashed um, a power. God is reconciling all things to himself. And we're meant to mirror in our life together what God is doing at a cosmic level. And so the book of Ephesians is divided into two parts. The first part is about finding peace or wholeness or unity. And the second part is about keeping peace or wholeness or unity. And the letter begins with this long run-on sentence that uh, Paul gives, as, um, as we heard a moment ago from Chuck. Paul would have probably received a, a poor grade from his teacher, uh, from his grammar teacher on that, because it's just a long sentence, and she would have said you should break that up into smaller chunks, but it's as though Paul has this outburst that he cannot contain himself, and this outpouring of blessing. He repeats this over and over again in the first, uh, in the first part of our passage in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Three times in the first part of that phrase, blessing, blessing, blessing. In fact, he begins with what would typically go at the end of the letter. This blessing or benediction, you normally find it at the conclusion, but he's brought that to the beginning of the letter. And part of the reason he's doing that is because he's reminding his hearers that God is also bringing the end into the present as well. That's what God is doing in the resurrection. Um, Paul wants us to see that there is an echo to the Genesis creation account right here when God created the universe and everything in it and out of his good pleasure and will and he blessed it. He blessed it. And so Paul wants us to see that. In other words, we're invited to be the kind of people who can also perceive that the end has come into the present through the resurrection, that there's a new creation. And what's been done for the world on Easter morning is meant to take shape in our lives today. So here's the key verse for, as I see it, for this letter. He has made known to us the mystery of his will as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God is up to something really profound at a cosmic level through Christ. And when you read this, to gather up all things in him, it's really easy for the eyes to glaze over and to just kind of skip right over this. Um, but this phrase, to gather up all things, um, is this really profound Greek word. It looks like this. So you can repeat it after me if you'd like. Anakaphileosis thigh. Ready? No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to. <laughs> That's, ah, yeah, anakaphileosis thigh. And by the way, um, you, if you play Scrabble, you should write this down because <laughs> this is gold. And so what he says here, what God is up to in the world through Christ is to anakaphileosis thigh, 
all things in heaven and on earth. The word is actually two words. Anna is uh, what you would do if you want to add heat or intensity to a word. So if I'm really serious about something, I add an Anna to it. And kephala is about, uh, it means head or an organizing head um, or an organizing center to things. So one way that this word was used in ancient Greek was as a mathematical term. It can be translated to sum things up. Right? So if I give you an equation, 3 plus 4 plus 5 equals what? 12. Then <laughs> when you did that equation, you gave me the sum of all of those numbers. You took all of it and you summed it all up. When we use this term, anacaphaleosis, what they were speaking of in math terms is taking these different numbers and summing them all up with one number that brings unity and cohesion to the other numbers. What the writer is saying here is what God is up to is he's bringing unity, cohesion, summing everything up in Christ, all things. That leaves out nothing. Another word to use, another English word, is recapitulate. It's when you take all of the good and all of the bad and you recapitulate it into a new story. We actually do this um, in everyday life in subtle ways. We tell stories at the dinner table, for example, and if you think about the stories at the, at the dinner table and what kinds of stories um, are, are uh, captivating, what kinds of, imagine if you told a story that left out, um, that didn't have any conflict. Let, let's say you tell a story, I went to the grocery store and I went in, first went into the produce aisle and I, I got four apples and I put them in my cart and then I went to the pasta section and I got a box of angel hair pasta and a jar of ragu, then I put that in my cart, and then I went to the checkout counter and I purchased all those items. It was awesome. <laughs> the problem with that story is we're all bored out of our minds, right? You're, you're summing things up, but there's nothing interesting about the story. Think about the stories that pop, that are interesting, like, one time when I, uh, 20 years ago, I took a youth leader and two graduating seniors from high school to on a surf road trip on the Pacific coast of Costa Rica. And I would love to tell about how we, um, our car broke down in the rainforest eight miles from a road and we were stuck and there was no one around and it was pouring down rain and then we got robbed and then I could go on and on and on and on actually about these stories and um, and how it was supposed to be so great and then but everything you know kind of went to pot. Maybe you have a story or two like this and these stories Everyone around the table is like laughing their heads off when you retell the story. Um, and these are the kinds of stories we love to hear and to tell. Why? Because you look back on the story and what do you do? You recapitulate it. You tell it in a new light. Um, at the time when it was raining and we <laughs> had no idea what we were going to do stuck in this rainforest, it wasn't that funny. 
it wasn't very, it wasn't an exciting story. We were complaining. I was, you know, praying and all sorts of things. It, it, we couldn't believe that this was actually happening. But later, once time has passed and we survived and we came to the other end of it, we retell it and the worst moments become what make the story so great. And if it's just a little bit of problem, then the story's hilarious. And if it's a big tragedy, then the story is inspiring. The story cast in a new light has a different frame. You recapitulate it. At the center of this word, anacaphileosis thigh, is acknowledging how awful it was and how um, horrible things were as well as the good things that came and em embracing all of that and allowing it to all be there in the retelling, but now you're giving it a new head, a new purpose. And what the writer is saying is that God is doing something in the world. He's recapitulating all of it. He's, he's gathering it all up with a new, print, a new organizing head, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The future has burst into the present. Um, and so it's not glossing over the troublesome parts of our lives. It's simply telling the story in a new way that gives them meaning and purpose. And to be growing in spiritual maturity is to be learning that at present at all times there is this anacaphileosis factor, um, something bigger going on, a story beyond the story. Like for example, you're all here. Um, all of what you've been through, hardships, job losses, abuse, breakups, illness, and you're here. And so at a very basic level, you could recapitulate your life by recounting all of the things that, you know, made you scared to death thinking you would never get through this, going to make it, and yet you're here today. And here's the thing about today. You can choose love. You can choose compassion. You can choose joy. You can choose to offer yourself for the healing of others. God gives us a new identity, a new way of seeing our stories and our lives. And we can be sure of this because Paul gives us three words of assurance that remind us that, that God has got us, our stories, past, present, future, um, in his hands. And he, he, he does this in three ways. I'll look at these briefly. It says that we are chosen by the Father, we are redeemed by the Son, and we are marked by the Spirit. It says we are chosen before the foundation of the world, that God had us in mind before creation. Henry Nouwen says this about um, being chosen by God. He says, to be chosen by God is the greatest gift and the deepest experience of being human. God's choosing is not competitive or based on your merit, but it's generous based on God's goodness and love. And to be blessed by God is to be given God's favor to love and favor so deep and so wide and so complete that covers all the failures of those who we also needed to bless us. So this is how we inherit our identity, knowing who we are and what we're about. Um, by grace, it's, Paul says we have been adopted into the loving communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So like a parent who picks a child for adoption, you and I, we weren't chosen because of our hard work or because of our success or even because we had great potential. We were chosen because the Spirit anointed the Son to find us and to bring us back home to the Father. 
And so in the midst of our paralysis and our lostness, our confusion, God chooses us. We've got to know that. We've got to remember that. It's not so much that we're born into a Christian family, but that we are adopted into God's holy Trinitarian family. Not only have we been chosen by God, we've been redeemed by the Son. Redemption, of course, is a transactional term. It means we've been bought with a price in the price of Jesus' life. We celebrated that. We remembered that on Good Friday last week. Um, We've lost our center like losing keys in a dark room, and God has, in Jesus, not only found us, but He's redeemed us. He's bought us back. We don't belong to ourselves or to our sin or to anyone or anything else for that matter. We belong to God who not only created us and blessed us in the beginning, but has also now redeemed us. You might remember um, a year ago I told a story about a boy who made a little toy boat. And uh, he was in New York City, and he brought this little boat to the lake uh, in Central Park. And it was a sailboat, and he wanted to play with the boat and the sail in the, in the lake. And he apparently made a really good sail because a gust of wind came, and it caught that little boat, and it took it to the other side of the lake, and he couldn't get it back. He lost his little boat, so he was very sad about that. A couple days later, he was walking down 57th Street, 57th Street, and he walked by a pawn shop, and he saw his little toy boat right in the window of the pawn shop. And he walked into the pawn shop, and he said to the owner, he said, that little boat, I, I want to buy that, that boat. And the owner said, this is how much it costs. And the boy said, well, don't sell it. I'm going to go home, get my money. I'll be right back. And so he runs home, breaks open his piggy bank, grabs his couple dollars from allowance, goes back to the pawn shop, and gives the money to the owner, and he gets his little toy boat out of the window, and as he walks out the door, he looks at his little toy boat, and he says, little boat, you are mine now for two reasons, because I made you and I bought you. Creation and covenant, I made you and I bought you. Um, This is what God says to us in Jesus Christ. That's what Easter proclaims creation and covenant. I made you and in Jesus Christ I bought you back. Then Paul says that we are marked by the Spirit with a seal. What's a seal? Well, when I was uh, in graduate school, I started to build my little pastor's library, and my dad bought me an embosser, and it has, it says from the library of, and it has my name and a little book and a cross thing on it, and so on the title page of all of my books, I can press that, and it indents my seal into the book. And I like to loan books out. And so if I loan it out and they forgot whose it belongs to, they can just look at the title page and says that it belongs to me. Thank you very much. I'd like my book back. Um, Your baptism. We baptized Jim a moment ago. That the water of the baptism is the embosser on the title page of your life. It says you belong to the Holy Spirit. Property of somebody else. That's true for every one of us. In our baptism, we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest modern expressions of this um, is, comes from the Pixar film Toy Story. In this series, there's a boy by the name of Andy who has a beloved toy by the name of Woody. And one of the great icons of understanding what it means to belong, to be loved, is the fact that on the bottom of Woody's boot, Andy has written his name. 
Woody doesn't belong to himself, he belongs to another. He's claimed, he's called by another. And this is so much of the identity of these stories of Toy Story, these great tales, all four movies. And when you get to the fourth toy, a toy by the name of Forky, who belongs to Bonnie, and Woody now belongs to Bonnie too because Andy is all grown up and Bonnie loves Forky, this little trash that has turned into a treasure, kind of like Pandy, the ragdoll story from last week. And on the bottom of Forky's feet, this creation that she made on the first day of school because she was scared, Bonnie has written her name. And what happens in the movie and the culmination of all the masterful stories it's telling is that Woody discovers that his life's purpose going forward is to take lost toys and to make sure that they have a home a friend. And so Woody spends the rest of his days um, trying to unite toys with children who need an expression of their love. Woody is even willing to do this at the cost of his own wholeness, his own voice. This voice box was a classic toy and one of the indications that he was special and he was willing to lay that down um, for the chance at being loved for others. You and I bear another's name. And to me, the most remarkable thing about the beginning of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is how many times he uses that little phrase, in Christ. We bear another's name. Verse 3, in Christ you have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, in Christ you are chosen. Verse 5, in Christ you are adopted. Verse 7, in Christ you have received grace by the beloved. In Christ your sins are forgiven. Because of this promise, we can find faith and trust that God is recapitulating our lives. There's a bigger story going on. And I began to, by talking today about how we can start the journey of finding peace and, and unity and how we preserve that. Um, and what we see today is that the beginning of that unity is not something that we do, but it's a gift. It's something that's done for us. It's given to us. We look at these three verbs. They're all in the past tense. Chosen, redeemed, marked. They're all things that have been done for you not things that you do for yourself. And this is the foundational truth. This is the, this is the cornerstone of whether or not we will ever truly figure out if we really belong to one another and whether or not we will weaponize hate and turn it into an asset or discover a sense of God's peace and wholeness. This is what God is doing in Jesus Christ. He is gathering all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Gracious God, thank you for the work you're doing because of the cross. We thank you for your spirit who has been unleashed into all creation. We pray that you will help us to recognize your presence, your reconciling work, and to participate in that. Help us to know, first of all, that you're reconciling us to yourself for all eternity. Give us faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.